For over 70 years, Oshner has been dedicated to cancer research and new cancer treatment development, bringing innovations to the fight against cancer, including more clinical trials than anywhere else in the region. I'm Dr. Jonathan Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. One of the most common complaints I hear from my patients when I first meet them to discuss their cancer diagnosis and treatment plan is that there is a lack of reliable, available information about cancer. Evaluating what is or isn't a credible source of information on the internet is challenging, even for the most experienced of Googlers. We are seeking to fill that gap by providing the public with understandable, reliable information about cancer. Join me as we talk to healthcare experts at Oshner about what you need to know should you or a loved one receive a cancer diagnosis. Welcome to All In Against Cancer. Breast cancer is the most common cancer diagnosis in women in the United States and currently accounts for the second most cancer deaths in women behind lung cancer. More than 260,000 diagnoses of breast cancer are made each year in this country. Advances in screening techniques and identifying who may be at higher risk for the development of breast cancer has allowed us to provide more targeted screening recommendations for our patients. In this episode of the All In Against Cancer podcast, we talk with Oshner Oncology nurse practitioners Erica Doubleday and Peggy Jo Alker to learn more about the development and services provided by Oshner's high-risk breast cancer clinic. So welcome, Erica Doubleday and Peggy Jo Alker, to the show. I really appreciate both coming on and uh, talking about this really incredible clinic we've developed at Oshner. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for having us. So let me start with you, Erica. Um, if you don't mind, just give me a little bit of background on on you. What's your story? Where you're from, and um, how you got to Oshner in this position you're in? Sure. I'm Erica Doubleday. I've been a nurse practitioner for eight years, but I've been at Oshner since 2010. I started as an oncology nurse in our infusion suite and moved to our bone marrow transplant team in 2014 and then became a breast cancer nurse practitioner four years ago. Currently, I am the director of APPs for our cancer service line, and I help Peggy Jo in doing this high-risk breast clinic. So you exclusively see breast cancer patients at this yes, point? Yes, I do. Well, good for you. And PJ, what about you? Hi, my name is Peggy Jo Alker. I have been a nurse practitioner for 20 years. I started my career in cardiology and transitioned into oncology in 2007. I started at Oshner in 2016 and mainly see breast cancer patients. I am involved in our oncology urgent care clinic and also am lead APP with our high-risk breast clinic. That's awesome. So you're, you're the tenured one of the group. So going a little bit about this high-risk breast cancer clinic that we're going to be talking about today, I'd love to hear a little bit of background on you know how this gets started, whose idea was this, where did you hear about constructing such a program? So PJ, do you mm -hmm. mind? Sure. So this clinic was developed to help identify women who are high risk for developing breast cancer. Just to kind of give you some statistics, breast cancer became the most common cancer globally as of 2021. It accounted for 12% of all new annual cancer cases worldwide, and this was according to the World Health Organization. About one in eight women will develop a breast cancer over the course of their lifetime. So what we know is that screening and early detection can lead to effective management and increase overall survival. So we assumed care for the high-risk breast clinic in October of 2020. It was managed by surgery, but due to limited access, 
we went ahead and assumed care, and we've been very successful in identifying these women who are high risk and developing a plan to help lower their risk and screen them a little more if appropriate. And at present, is it a clinic that's every day operating? Are there certain days of the week y'all have clinic for those patients? We have a daily operation for these. Okay. So it's a big population. Yes. So I'm going to get in a little bit about screening for breast cancer, just speaking generally, so we're kind of all on the same page here. So the screening guidelines for breast cancer are primarily based on uh, what we would recommend to the general public for for a generic woman who's at average risk. And for that uh, woman at average risk, uh, the recommendations are to start screening for breast cancer at the age of 40. And this would be with radiologic technique called a mammogram. And I think uh, many women above the age of 40 are very familiar with what that is. I, I can probably speak less personally to that. But, you know, where uh, there is imaging of the breast tissue uh, with a pretty quick identification from the radiologist, whether there are any abnormalities that warrant further workup, including potentially even a biopsy. So the recommendation is to do a mammogram annually. If you are at higher risk, obviously there are potential modifications to that. And we generally recommend that breast cancer screening go up until the age of 74. If you're considering beyond the age of 75, um, that's really an individualized uh, risk assessment uh, for a patient based on their life expectancy and maybe risk factors that they have. Their breast cancer screening is pretty well adopted, but obviously it's not 100% of, of folks, so we're, we're still trying to push to increase awareness around screening. A lot of people ask about breast self-exams. I think they are a useful tool for some people. It's not routinely recommended that everyone be doing routine breast exams, but I kind of tell patients that you should be familiar with your own breasts and what's normal and what's abnormal for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of my my guidance on that. Um, anything you guys want to add there in screening? I agree with being very familiar with your own breasts, knowing skin changes, any dimpling, any retraction, anything unusual on your breast. It's good to notify your healthcare providers. Great. So let's get in a little bit to the risk factors for breast cancer. So these are very diverse. And um, Erica, why don't you walk me through what those risk factors are? So we have many risk factors. We have what we call modifiable risk factors, which are those that we can change. And we have non-modifiable risk factors, which are things that we're unable to change. We'll start with the non-modifiable risk factors. So we have things such as our family history, which would include anybody in your history, in your family with a history of any type of cancer, specifically breast or ovarian cancer, are a little bit more exciting for us. The other things that we have that we can't change are our age. The older we get, the higher our risk for any cancer goes, but that's true for breast cancer as well. Our ethnicity and our race. Breast cancer is most common among Caucasian women. However, advanced breast cancer tends to be diagnosed more in the African-American population. Those women who use estrogen and progesterone for hormones to balance out some of the side effects of menopause are at a higher risk. And then any woman who has had a history of a breast biopsy, particularly those women that have had something called an LCIS or an ADH or an ALH, those can all increase your risk and there's nothing we can do to change those risk factors. One big thing a lot of women may not know is the density of their breast tissue can actually increase their risk for breast cancer. 
women who have extremely dense breasts are at an increased risk, and that's because our screening techniques can't always detect smaller tumors. And the last thing we can't change is if any woman had a history of particularly Hodgkin's disease and had radiation therapy to their chest, that can increase their risk. The very few things that we can change are modifiable risk factors are our body mass index, which is our weight. Anybody who has a BMI of 20 to 25 is within the normal range. Anybody's BMI who's above 25 as is at an increased risk for breast cancer. We can also modify our alcohol intake, smoking. We do recommend the cessation of smoking if you're a current smoker. We can modify hormone therapy, and we can also increase our regular exercise. Thanks, Erica. I think that was a fantastic overview and really breaking it down into, again, modifiable what we can change, which unfortunately are fewer things, but obviously anything within our control is empowering. And then the non-modifiable stuff about our age, family history, and so on and so forth. I do think I kind of want to highlight a point you made, which was not only knowing your family history of breast cancer, really all cancers. Because I think when people think, oh, breast cancer, well, maybe mom didn't have breast cancer. She might have had ovarian cancer. She might have, you know, dad had prostate cancer. Those are relevant. Those are relevant details in calculating what your personal risk is, uh, whether it's because of a genetic syndrome, which, you know, we'll, we can get in a little bit to that, um, but, but also because they're kind of syndromes or underlying genetics that we really don't have tests for or don't really well understand. And those can still put you at increased risk of getting breast cancer. So, PJ, when you're seeing someone in the clinic, we have actual calculators that we can use to assess what someone's risk is and provide some kind of number. Yes. Uh, talk me through that. Yes. So, there are several models available to calculate a woman's risk uh, to determine if she is high risk for developing a breast cancer. The two models that we use in clinic are the Tyracusic or the TC and the Gale model. The Tyracusic is an evaluation tool that is recommended by the NCCN, which is our National Comprehensive Cancer Network. The TC will give us a woman's lifetime risk of developing a breast cancer up into the age of 85. It takes into account patient's history, family history, and it gives us a percentage. With that percentage, you get placed in average, intermediate, or high-risk category for developing a breast cancer. Anyone with a 20% score or above is considered high risk, and we follow certain guidelines that are recommended to help lower their risk and screen them if it's appropriate. The Gale model gives us a five-year and a lifetime risk. Um, we do use the Gale model more to assess individuals to see if they're eligible for chemo prevention, which is medication to help lower your risk, which we'll talk about later on. So again, none of these models are perfect, but they do give us a good sense of where a woman is in regards to her risk. It's really interesting. So are these are these models regularly accessible? Like can it, an individual just Google this and type in their own stuff? Is this something that only doctors have access to? No, they are online. Uh, the models we use are online and they're pretty easy to use. Yeah, it's so interesting. So let's talk a little bit about patients who go to their clinic, go to this high-risk breast clinic here at Oshner or elsewhere, they get some risk that's calculated, says I'm at 22% risk, or I don't know, making that up. Um, and then they want to say, all right, what can I do to modify my risk? So we talked through some of those risk factors, Erica. So what would you advise a patient at that point? 
we're going to keep the the taking pills or medicines aside for a second, but just in terms of lifestyle changes. Right. So there are several things that a patient can do. The first thing, like we talked about earlier, is smoking cessation. So if the patient is a current smoker, we do recommend that they quit smoking. Um, That can drastically reduce the risk for several cancers, but breast cancer is one of those. The second thing they can do is limit their alcohol. Now, we are in New Orleans, so we're not taking away your alcohol, (laughs) but we do recommend just one glass of alcohol a day. And typically that looks like six ounces of wine, eight ounces of beer, or a mixture drink a day. Is that modified during Mardi Gras season or that's I always? mean, preferably modified. <laughs> <laughs> um, I usually tell patients, if you have two drinks in a day, it's okay. Just skip the next day. Let the body reset. Mm-hmm. We do tend to go overboard a little bit, but it's everything in moderation. The other big thing that we can do, and this helps in a myriad of ways, is exercise. So we know that regular exercise, which just means 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week, can reduce your relative risk of breast cancer by approximately 18 to 20 percent. I don't need people going out there doing CrossFit. I don't need anybody going out there running a marathon. Walking, yoga, Pilates, getting your heart rate above resting heart rate counts as this 150 minutes. Now, if somebody was want to run a, a marathon, by all means, we only need 75 minutes of vigorous exercise a week. This not only helps reduce the risk of breast cancer, but it can help that postmenopausal weight gain that we talked about earlier and keep the BMI within a normal 20 to 25. Um, and this really helps reduce the risk of a postmenopausal breast cancer. That's great. And I, I think a lot of patients have other comorbid conditions. In other words, they have other, you know, maybe they have joint issues, arthritis, and they're like, well, I can't really run. I can't really walk that well. I tell them to get in the pool. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, certain gym memberships will have a pool or, you know, there. I would explore options. You would have to do kind of aquatic aerobics as a, a way to kind of get that pressure and, and weight and gravity and force off your joints, uh, but still get your heart rate up. So uh, I always throw that in there as an extra option for patients. No, that's a great option. The other question I get a lot is if there's foods that can link or increase their risk for breast cancer. And we just recommend a well-balanced diet. A lot of our patients like to adhere to a Mediterranean diet, but fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, whole grains, dairy products are best. We don't have a specific diets recommend, and we don't have foods that we know for sure link to breast cancer. So we don't recommend patients avoid anything. I remember there being a lot of talk about Tofu and soy. That, yeah, and soy increasing risk. Is that a thing or is that debunked or do so we know? <laughs> naturally occurring, this is per our um, nutrition team, but naturally occurring soy is fine. So the soy you get at sushi restaurants, the soy that you would cook with, it's genetically modified soy. It is stabilized with estrogen. And you would find that in herbal supplements from Whole Foods or mm. those herbal specialty stores. Interesting. Always yeah. learning stuff. Okay, so PJ, let's let's go a little bit into that chemo prevention. So when we say chemo prevention, mm-hmm. I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. That means not chemotherapy, but it no. just means a medical therapy we're using to try to prevent development of breast cancer. So walk me through the options there. Yeah, so it's another name for it is endocrine therapy. There are several medications that we can use. Uh, there are two different classes. One is a selective estrogen receptor modulator, and the other class is an aromatase inhibitor. What these medications do, they can reduce a woman's risk of developing an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer. Um, we have tamoxifen for premenopausal and postmenopausal women, and raloxifen, anastrozole, or exemestane for postmenopausal women. Tamoxifen is probably the most common, and it is what we call a selective estrogen receptor modulator. So basically, it tells the estrogen where to go. 
on our breast, we have estrogen receptors. And what we know is that most breast cancer feeds on estrogen. So if we can block those receptors and send estrogen elsewhere, we can reduce our risk of developing a breast cancer. So taking tamoxifen for five years has been shown to reduce a woman's risk of developing the breast cancer by 49%. Mm. Those women who have a, who've had a breast mass that has shown ADH or LALH, which is atypical ductal hyperplasia, atypical lobular hyperplasia, or an LCIS, which is a lobular carcinoma in situ, they have even more of a significant risk reduction of 86%. So the tamoxifen, I'll just mention that there is some limited data in the BRCA1 and 2 population, but there is some retrospective data that is suggestive of benefit. But a lot of times the recommendations for those with a gene mutation are different than what we are talking about. So that's a whole nother conversation. Another class of drugs available is the aromatase inhibitors. So our ovaries are not the only place that we get estrogen from. Uh, We have precursors to estrogen, which are made in our fat, adrenals, and muscles. The aromatase inhibitors suppress estrogen levels by inhibiting the enzyme aromatase, which is responsible for the conversion of androgens to estrogens. So it reduces your risk in that, that mechanism or that way. Taking aromatase inhibitors for five years has been shown to reduce your risk by 50 to 60%. So it's a little more potent than tamoxifen. There is some retrospective data that aromatase inhibitors can reduce the risk of a contralateral ER-positive breast cancer in the BRCA1 and 2 patients who were taking AIs as adjuvant therapy. But both of these classes have been shown very successful in helping to reduce a woman's risk. The data out there is to take for five years. There is no data out there that says taking it more than five years can give you even a further risk reduction than what it's been shown. And then also I'll mention that risk reduction therapy in those less than 35 years of age is unknown. So that's really interesting to me. It's, it's just uh, since I don't do breast oncology really myself, It's just an area of prevention that I'm just, I don't practice every day, but I think it's fascinating. So just kind of ask you, if a patient comes into clinic, you said you use these like risk calculators and you're like, okay, you're um, based on this TC score, then Mm -hmm. your risk is above such and such percentage. This is my recommendation. Do you say this is an option? How do you kind of counsel a patient on on whether you're going to offer that to them? Whether we're going to offer it. Yeah, we follow the NCCN guidelines to determine which women might be candidates for chemo prevention. So basically, a woman qualifies if she is equal or greater than 35 years of age and has one of the following, an atypical hyperplasia, ductal or lobular, a history of LCIS, a Gale model, five-year risk of greater than 1.67%, a TC 10-year breast cancer risk of equal to or greater than 5%, prior thoracic radiation therapy at age 10 to 30, and a life expectancy of greater than 10 years and no contraindications to risk-reducing medications. So that's actually a a lower bar than I would have expected. I mean, some Mm -hmm. of those percentages are actually pretty low. So it seems like that's a lot of patients that could be captured. So just curious if anecdotally, you know, of the patients that come in that meet that criteria, do you have any Mm -hmm. estimate of like what percentage of them actually do go ahead and start chemo prevention? We do have a lot of patients that are 
um, you know, if they see that their TC score is 30 or 40 percent, then they would be a little more willing to go ahead and start the chemo prevention or the endocrine therapy. With these medications come side effects. So some of the side effects with the endocrine therapy is hot flashes. You can have joint pain. You can have some mid-abdominal weight gain. With tamoxifen, there is a small risk of uterine cancer, a small risk of blood clot. And with an aromatase inhibitor, there's a slight risk of osteoporosis. So we really need to look at the individual, determine if they're appropriate, and talk through which medication we would decide for them to take. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. It's not so black and white like, oh, you're just above this threshold. Right. You need this. It's like, how high are you above that threshold? What are the risk factors you have for these other side effects? You know, let's talk through whether this actually makes sense for you. Right. I mean, raloxifen has been shown to um, have a reduction in breast cancer and not have the risk of uterine cancer like tamoxifen does. So it may be more appropriate for a woman who still has a uterus to, that is postmenopausal, to take raloxifen. It's also been shown to reduce the incidence of vertebral fractures. So Hmm. for a woman who has osteoporosis, that might be a better option. Great. That was a great overview. Erica, uh, tell me about different screening options. So, you know, I, I talked a little bit about mammography earlier, mammogram, Obviously, that's not the only one available, and particularly for the high-risk patients. So can you walk me through those? Sure. So like Dr. Mizrahi said earlier, we do recommend starting mammography at age 40 for all women, regardless of your risk. However, those women that come into clinic and see us, we go through a myriad of options. The first we already talked about earlier, we do recommend monthly breast self-awareness. We do like women to be aware of their breast and to notice any changes. The second thing we recommend is actually two clinical breast exams a year. And that just means a provider does a breast exam on you twice a year. It doesn't even have to be the same provider. I know PJ and myself, we tend to do one once a year and we allow the GYN or a PCP to do the second one. Then when it comes to imaging, we do recommend a mammogram. Depending on your risk factors and depending on your family history, it depends on when that mammogram would begin. For example, if you were a woman who had a mother that had breast cancer at age 40, we would recommend your mammogram begin at age 30. Now, if you were just considered high risk, your mammogram would still begin at the age of 40, as long as the youngest person in your family to have breast cancer was not younger than 50. Okay. Which sounds a little complicated, but we would do all of the math for you. This second thing, and that would still be a yearly mammogram. This second thing we do recommend for our high-risk population is an MRI of the breast. Um, And we like to alternate those. So if you get a mammogram in January, we would recommend an MRI in July. We like them to be about six months apart, and that's also yearly. And again, the age that that starts, it really depends on the youngest person in your family who is diagnosed with breast cancer. There are a couple of alternatives. We can do ultrasounds, bilateral breast ultrasounds for those women who may not be able to have an MRI if they have metal in their body, if they're claustrophobic, or if they can't tolerate the gadolinium that's injected for the MRI. And then Ochsner is actually the first hospital in the region to have contrast-enhanced mammography. We do have it at our Lafayette location, but we also started it in December at our Jefferson Highway location. And that's kind of a combination between a mammogram and an MRI. We do inject a dye to see through the breast tissue better, but it is a mammogram that we're actually performing. And I'll ask kind of what I think is an interesting question, probably a lot of people who are listening do, is particularly when you're 
um, recommending, you know, maybe an MRI in between your mammography, do you ever get pushback from insurance or is that something that because it's according to guidelines, because you're at high risk, it's justifiable and you get it covered? Great question. So yes, occasionally we will get pushback from insurance, but typically if we code it appropriately, high risk family history of breast cancer, dense breast tissue, we can give it covered. A second question that we get all the time is, is it worth the risk of the exposure of radiation, getting the mammogram and the MRI? And yes, research has shown that if you do have a breast cancer and we catch it early, it is worth the minimal risk that you're going to get from that radiation from the mammogram and the MRI yearly. Well, the good thing is that MRIs don't have radiation too. So that's a, an extra bonus that even though you are getting the mammogram every year, then you know MRI shouldn't be adding to that radiation. Now, what happens if you have an abnormal one? What transpires at that point? So there's a few things. So the first thing that we typically will do if they are unsure if it needs to be biopsied is we'll actually do an ultrasound and look at it first. If the radiologist who's reading the mammogram determines we definitely need to biopsy it, they may request either an ultrasound-guided biopsy or an MRI-guided biopsy. It really depends on what the abnormality looks like in the breast, and then they'll determine what they think is the best mode to be able to see it to perform that biopsy. And if you're interested in what happens after that, if it turns into breast cancer, (laughs) we have a whole other podcast you can listen to. Great. So, PJ, we have our patients. They come in. They see, um, you know, our wonderful team of providers and, you know, they want to know what other resources are available at Oshner to support me in, you know, lowering my risk or to talk to and, and how I can be managed. Yeah, we have several available resources to women to help with their journey to becoming healthier. We have a um, dietitian, nutritionist. We have bariatric weight loss clinics. We have integrative services, which would include things like acupuncture We are possibly starting a little exercise regimen with our high-risk population, several available resources, and we can certainly talk through that at their appointments. Great. Now for our recurring segment, what can I do to decrease my risk? So I'll start with you, Erica. What can I do to decrease my risk of getting breast cancer? So know your family history. Know the cancers that you've had, if you have genetic mutations in your family history, if you want to get genetic testing, that's something that's available. Know what puts you at risk from your family's side. And then know that you can do several things to help reduce the risk. You can quit smoking, you can limit your alcohol, you can modify your diet, and you can start exercising. All of those things will help prevent and reduce the risk. And then make sure you get your mammograms on time. It's due every year, a day, a year plus a day for insurance purposes, but you really want to stay on top of it. There are slow-growing cancers, there are fast-growing cancers, so you want to make sure that you're getting your mammograms when you need to. For those women that are listening who have not had children or maybe pregnant, you can reduce your risk of breast cancer by breastfeeding. It's a relative risk, about 4.3% risk reduction when you breastfeed for 12 months. So it is a good risk reduction. We know not all women can breastfeed, but if you can, we do encourage it. Great. PJ, Mm -hmm. uh, what should I ask my team at my first appointment? So at your first appointment, you want to know what are your risk factors? What is making you high risk for developing this breast cancer? Which of those risk factors can I modify? And just like Erica had said earlier, you know, lifestyle modifications, those things. 
You also want to know what additional screening might be recommended in addition to your annual mammogram. And then also another great question to ask is, do I need genetic testing? So we do have genetic counselors at Oshner that we can certainly send you to if we see that there's a family history of not only breast cancer, but of other cancers, we can get you to that team. Great. For our next recurring segment, fact or fiction? So I'll start with you, Erica. I have dense breasts, so screening won't be effective for me. That's incorrect. So screening is still effective, and that's why we do have this high-risk breast clinic, because if you do have dense breasts, you would qualify for an MRI or the contrast-enhanced mammography, which are better tests to see through the density of the breast than maybe a standard mammogram might be. So fiction, still get screened. Yes. (laughs) All right, next one. PJ, this one's for you. Mm -hmm. My mother and my grandmother had breast cancer, so I am destined to get it. Not necessarily. But it is important to understand that your risk might be slightly higher than the average woman for developing a breast cancer because of that family history. Therefore, again, it is important to keep up to date with your screening, whether it's the annual mammogram or an annual mammogram alternating with an annual MRI, whichever may be appropriate for you. It is also important to have your clinical breast exams by your provider, either annually or semi-annually. And again, breast awareness, like we had discussed early. Look in the mirror every month. Do you have any skin changes, any dimpling, any swelling, any nipple changes? You can feel around the breast. If you notice any lumps or bumps or something that concerns you, reach out to your provider. Erica, I have another fact or fiction for you. Okay. I had genetic testing. I was negative for BRCA1, BRCA2, ATM, PALB2. Though there's breast cancer in my family, I'm negative for my genetic testing. Therefore, I am not at increased risk of getting breast cancer. Fact or fiction? Fiction. Just because those are the only genes that we have tested for doesn't mean we know all genes. And there could be genes that we have yet to discover in medicine that could increase your risk. And there are several other factors like the modifiable and non-modifiable factors that we discussed earlier that can definitely increase your risk. So you'd still want to know, are you high risk even though you're genetically negative for a gene mutation and what you can do to pre- or try and reduce the risk? Another fiction. One of these days I'm going to throw a fact in there and throw everyone off. Should you get a mammogram starting at age 40? Fact. There you go. Should I or should, should a generic woman? Well, it's since you brought that Let's up, go there. men Let's go. that do have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene mutation do need to be screened as well for breast cancer. Now, those men typically will come and see us in high-risk breast clinic. Mm-hmm. We will do a breast exam on them. We typically just do it once a year. Mm-hmm. If they do have enough breast tissue for us to be able to perform a mammogram, they will get a yearly mammogram. So I, I will note anecdotally my grandfather had breast cancer. Tested negative for genetic testing and, and subsequently his first degree family members did as well, just to be 100% sure. But, you know, that is something that I, I keep in mind for my own family history as well, is that there is male breast cancer runs in the family. So right. it happens. Yeah. How long ago was he tested? That was in the early 90s, I believe. Because that was so long ago, his children were retested Good. Um, later to make sure their new variants were, were picked up and everything, and they were negative. So. Good. Hopefully I'm in the clear, but I will uh, (laughs) certainly know my breasts. Yes. Well, look, I appreciate both of you coming on and chatting with us. I think I certainly learned a lot, and um, it was very informative. And I think this clinic is fantastic. It's a great resource for um, our patients, but really our whole community, to know that 
this exists and people should really be talking to their doctors to say, hey, am I at high risk? Do I need to see a high risk clinic? What's my family history? You know, what things do I need to look out for? And for you guys to be able to offer this to our community is really a, a blessing and, and thank you both. Thanks okay. for having thank us. Thank you. So if you or someone in your family has been told by their physician, they're at high risk for breast cancer. I hope this episode can give you some guidance on the management and screening options available. The Oshner High Risk Breast Cancer Clinic utilizes a multidisciplinary approach to help women at risk for developing breast cancer. To schedule an appointment with our team at the High Risk Breast Cancer Clinic at Oshner, please visit oshner.org or call 504-842-3910. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I'm Dr. Mizrahi with the Oshner Cancer Institute. I'll see you next time on the All In Against Cancer podcast.